Namaste and welcome to this part 7, episode 7 of the Sita Ram Goel Centenary Series. The Sita Ram Goel Ji Ke Shatabdi Varsh Me Ejo Series Chalri is my Aapka Swagate. Aaj Amara Satwa episode hai or is my Ham Paat Karnevale Sita Ram Goel Ji Ke Hot Prasid Bustake. It is called Muslim Separatism. Causes and consequences, and uh, as usual, we of course have we have Conrad uh, Elsji with us. Uh, Shankar Sharanji will likely join after a while. Uh, hasn't joined yet. I think he's stuck somewhere. So we are getting in touch with him, and we'll, uh, uh, he will join shortly. So uh, let us uh, discuss this book, Conrad. This is a very interesting book, and. Uh, in fact, uh, the first chapter of my book, Unbreaking India, actually borrows very heavily from the first chapter of this book. Uh, the first chapter of this book is uh, two behavior patterns. And these two behavior patterns, he has described it very beautifully and uh, given a detailed account of what these two behavior patterns are. Though I have uh, said this so many times, but I think uh, it would be instructive if I read that particular chapter or, yeah. So what he says about these two behavior patterns, hmm? basically he has borrowed it from H.V. Seshadri. H.V. Seshadri was the general secretary of the RSS for 12 long years. Unfortunately, RSS doesn't seem to have learned anything from this seminal book that H.V. Seshadri wrote. And they don't seem to particularly quote this book or remember this book or cite this book or even uh, in their behavior, even you do not even seem to agree with the references from this book. And it says that to start with, we want to take up what we consider to be its most important contribution, namely the unraveling of two behavior patterns, Muslim and national which collaborated closely for years and precipitated partition in the final round. The Muslim behavior pattern was characterized by acrimony, accusations, complaints, demands, denunciations, and street riots. And the national behavior pattern, on the other hand, was characterized by accusations, assent, cajolery, concessions, cowardice, self-reproach, and surrender. And unfortunately, that seems to be the pattern even today. So uh, I start with chapter one. All right. Well, indeed, you see, this, uh, this book started as a, a collection of um, articles about different aspects of that book, uh, The Tragic Story of Partition by H.V. Sashadri. Uh, his... Um, his judgment of that book was rather mixed. Uh, this, this is an article series published in The Organizer, you know, which was like Sashadri's own paper, which was an RSS paper. And so where he confined himself to the positive aspects of the book, he also had his criticism of the book, which is not very much present in these articles. Um, and we will see what that criticism is. It's, it's not far to seek. 
and it's even more applicable to the RSS today, namely an overemphasis on the territorial aspect and an insufficient emphasis of the uh, ideological aspect. We'll, we'll return to that. But so, uh, in broad outline, this is a very good book, it's a very serious contribution. And so, indeed, you see, it starts by um, laying out a traditional Hindu view of the Indian territory and alternative views, which nowadays go by the name secularism. So, Hindus have already for several thousand years um, noticed the unity of India and appreciated the unity of India. This starts during the um, edition of the great epics in which uh, the Indian territory is seen as united, where all later dynasties seek to be written into the narrative seek to somehow be connected with that national event, the battle in Kurukshetra, as well as uh, the story of Rama. And so both the, the dynasties that have effectively played a role in this battle or did Rama during some of his itinerary, as well as other dynasties, strictly speaking, historically speaking, not connected to the events. Nevertheless, they all try to somehow participate, somehow be present in these events, in the story of the events at any rate. And so we see that by then already there is a sense of Indian unity. Uh, this was largely fostered by the pilgrimages. We already see in the Mahabharata several pilgrimages like Balaramas uh, going uh, around the Saraswati or the Pandavas going to the source of the Ganga. So you see that that created a very living experience of Indian unity already thousands of years ago. I want you to, to uh, imagine what this means. You see, Today, for instance, or at least until very recently, the Americans were known as very great patriots. And I can testify, if Americans are abroad, they're talking about America like at least half the time. And so they're great patriots. <laughs> Nevertheless, their patriotism is very recent. We see for a number of recent immigrants, it is indeed like within our lifetime, but even for uh, old stock Americans, it is it is two three hundred years old, and so and for many countries it is like that. Um, even they have migrated to the place where they are now, or they have expanded from a little part of the place where they are now, and yet you see they have developed a patriotism, a strong sense of national unity. So in the case of India, that is far 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 stronger far deeper. Uh, this was mainly a cultural unity. It was also, and in a, in a day of, you know, anti-casteist uh, agitation, it's perhaps not, uh, not so popular to say it, but one aspect of the 
national unity was also the presence of the Brahmin caste. You see, the Brahmin caste were originally the preservers of the Vedas. Now, the Vedas um, originated with the Paurava tribe of the lunar dynasty in the Saraswati Yamuna area, present-day Haryana. And it gathered a great prestige, if only because a whole class of people was set aside to preserve these poems, to learn them by heart. And then that became the backbone of a whole conglomerate of sciences, not just linguistics, but also mathematics, astronomy. So it was very prestigious, like, like in the 20th century, Western science was in, in the whole, you know, what is now called the third world. Um, so similarly, everybody wanted to be present in this uh, Vedic culture. So all the kings invited Brahmins to their area, gave them benefits, gave them agraharas, uh, places where they could live, a certain percentage of the tax revenue, and so on, so that they could devote themselves to this Vedic culture and, and confer its prestige on their dynasty. And so the whole of India, uh, had this, this, you know, parts of this same Brahmin caste with the typical Brahmin culture that then started to influence the local culture. And so in every province of India, there is sort of a, a marriage between a local element and a pan-Indian element. So you see from that, there, there, grew uh, a strong sense of national unity already two or more thousand years ago. And by contrast, at the political level, this unity was only an ideal that sometimes was approximately realized by the Nanda, the Maurya dynasty, the Gupta dynasty, then unpleasant to say, but also by the Mughal dynasty, and then finally by Queen Victoria. Um, but so, this was not a new thing, this was not an invention of the British in the 19th century. No, you see, this aspiration for political unity was already present in the Mahabharata already. There is talk of the Chakravarti, the one who rules a conglomerate of kingdoms that each have a certain measure of autonomy, but nevertheless are all part of the same empire. So that is a very long Indian tradition. That's not a modern invention. That's not an importation from Western nationalism or something that is truly and deeply Hindu. By contrast, you also have a, a far more recent tradition of overemphasizing this dividedness, of trying to see a separation between different kingdoms, like especially since the Muslim period, the division of India in those areas that were under Muslim rule and those that were not. And this then becomes part of a larger vision of dividedness, like overemphasizing the division in languages in castes and so on. So there you have the ideological germ of separatism. Now, as um, as Sitaram Goel emphasizes, 
you see these these germs had a certain following in india but then when it really mattered like at the hour of independence from the british they all came together you see the urban classes and the rural masses the high caste and the low caste even ambedkar who had been a 100% collaborator with the british who initially was opposed to independence nevertheless when independence became inevitable he joined hands with the freedom movement you see acquired a place in the national uh, unity cabinet and constructively contributed to india's future so you see mostly the hindus in the largest sense were part of that national vision it is mainly is the muslims and to some extent the christian missionaries i won't say the christian flock like the traditional syrian christians in kerala were and to my knowledge even till today are great indian patriots but the missionaries with their link to britain to america increasingly you see they didn't care so much for indian unity so when the muslims achieve partition and of course we're going to return to that in more detail when the muslims achieve partition the missionaries also try to get their own piece of the cake in hope to create christian countries in chota nagpur in the northeast in kerala so that was not to be and they also could fairly easily reconcile with the new reality of india mainly because contrary to their expectations the hindus didn't give them a hard time the hindus let them uh, cultivate christianity even propagate christianity you see which is far 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 better than what they were experiencing at the exact same time in china for instance where they were exiled at best usually imprisoned or killed and so you see in india they had tried their hand at partition but not with much conviction and not with any success by contrast the muslim community almost unitedly uh, pulled the same rope uh, supported the same cause of partition and um, so within just a few years they achieved it right and uh, you refer to the territorial tradition and uh, the national territorial tradition the national historical tradition mm. these are two of the chapters that are there in this book and again he refers to shri h v sheshadri and then gets on to the business of blaming the british in the fourth chapter so you discussed about this the national territorial tradition in brief so would you like to dilate on it a little bit and then go to the business of blaming the british tradition um yes there is a little bit more to say about the territorial tradition i myself happen to be a known critic of that tradition in the sense that okay territory is there but its importance is a bit exaggerated or is used a lot especially by hindu nationalists of the rss variety to downplay the ideological factor and to say well you see all indians are brothers and you know essentially it's it's a variety on gandhi's approach of sarva dharma samabhava 
Um, so just papering over the sharp ideological difference between Muslims and Hindus. And so that's exaggerated, but nevertheless, I, I do want to emphasize that it's also genuine in the sense that Hindus are attached to India as a whole. And, you know, for them, it has a particular meaning um, that they stand to attention when uh, Janagana Mana is played is not some, some artificially created modern patriotism. That's a very deep thing. And the song uh, is also very deep. You see, it mentions, it mentions Krishna as the charioteer who comes yuge, yuge, who comes from age to age to, to sustain dharma. It mentions Durga, you know, the, the combative mother. It mentions uh, Shiva, the, the, the Vishwa guru. And um, so it's a very profound song. It really goes to the heart of the matter, namely it sings of India, but at the same time, <clears throat> it emphasizes Hindu culture. You see, <clears throat> India is not just a piece of territory. It is the uh, physical embodiment of a civilization. Now, about the borders of India, you know, that's, that's another story. Uh, you could say that in the Vedic age, um, already some parts outside India, in Afghanistan, as far as uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Xinjiang, the western part of the People's Republic, were also to quite an extent part of Hindu culture. Then centuries of Islamic rule have, have put those areas out of reach for India. <laughs> then conversely, in, in Southeast Asia also, Hinduism has been brought and has been wholeheartedly accepted by the local population. And so to, to quite an extent, they are Hindus. You find elements of Hindu institutions in Thailand, for instance. Um, like a few years ago, some temple in Thailand, the main temple in Bangkok was, uh, was the target of a terrorist attack. Then it came in the news. It was called the Prom Temple, which is the local pronunciation of Brahma. And you have, of course, the Angkor, Angkor Wat in, uh, in Cambodia, uh, which is a uh, Vishnu temple, and so on. So, I mean, Hinduism is larger than India. Today, of course, it's much larger than India in the sense that it is establishing itself in Kenya, in South Africa, in England, in Holland, in the States. And um, so the the coinciding of Hinduism with the Indian territory is a bit less applicable, but nevertheless, by and large, you see, India is the territory of Hindu civilization. And that identification, if only approximative, is, is quite valid, is quite ancient and quite deep. So to, to a large extent, I don't mind the, the expression Hindu nationalism, which which makes the civilizational Hindu element coincide with the territorial Indian element. To a large extent, they do coincide. Right. Now to come to your question. <clears throat> the business of blaming the British. <clears throat> so, let 
when I am up in arms every time, I hear Hindus say that it is the British who practice in India. I am not inventing anything. You see, I may be a foreigner and I may not understand anything of India as they always tell me. But um, I have this mainly from Sitaram Goel, who was a Paka Indian, I can assure you. So, what he says is, it is a very convenient myth launched by Congress that it is the British who practice in India. Now, you know, first look at the, at the actual history, the details of history. Some people who say that, that the British did it, actually also do claim the support of history against me. And so they come up with old texts that prove something, but that prove something else than what they claim it proves. Namely, it proves that the Muslim League, the party that achieved partition, was a creation of the British. Now, that much is true. You see, in, um, in 1905, you had the um, Hindu movement against the partition of Bengal. Then, you see, it gathered a lot of steam. It became a popular movement, and the British were afraid of it. One of the measures to counter it was the creation of the Muslim League in 1906. And then against the Muslim League, the Hindus themselves, not the British, the Hindus themselves founded the Hindu Maha Sabha, or first the Hindu Sabha in the Punjab province and a few other provinces. But it was a false start. It united in 1915. It was still a false start. It's only in 1922 that this became a real political party. At any rate, it was an independent political party. It was the Hindus' own initiative. By contrast, of the Muslim League, it is indeed true that this was uh, patronized by the British and that it was part of the divide and rule strategy of the British. That much is true. However, the Muslim League grew up and gradually uh, insisted on its own agenda, which gradually started escaping the British scheme. And so this is especially true from the 1930s onwards. In the 1930s, you had a few thinkers, especially Mohammed Iqbal, the poet, who started thinking about Pakistan, you see, from the time of the Purna Swaraja resolution of Congress in 1929, when they officially started aiming for full independence, the idea of independence had gained ground, had at least become realistic. You see, the, 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 the potential for a real um, declaration of independence, an effective declaration of independence, a transfer of power away from the British, became realistic. And so some in the Muslim community started preparing for that. They had, of course, never contributed anything at all to the achievement of independence. But if independence came about, then they wanted to have their peace. 
So they started thinking about Pakistan, by which they mostly thought of the Northwest. Practically what is now Pakistan plus some pieces of Rajasthan, uh, East Punjab, Kashmir. <clears throat> they did not yet think so much about uh, Bengal, but then the Bengalis, you see, once the idea was launched, then of course they said, yeah, but we are a Muslim majority territory also. We also want to be part of Pakistan. And then effectively East Bengal became the strongest supporter of partition. Um, so anyway, it is then in 1940 that the Muslim League officially adopted the Pakistan resolution. So from then on through the 1940s, this was issue number one in India. You know, many in the British camp were still holding off the idea of independence, still thought that they could avoid it. Uh, but in, in among Indians, more and more people started seeing, well, this is in, inevitable. We are going to have to prepare for the world after independence. And so the Muslims had their plan, which was a Muslim state. Now, the, uh, the role of the British in that was that, well, first of all, they didn't think of either united or a partitioned India because they still thought of a British India. They wanted to keep India British. The way they had managed to keep South Africa British, for example. And so, you know, with, with a, a rather sensible policy of making compromises where necessary and so on, they managed to uh, preserve the essence of their power. And so they were willing to give some dominion status to India some measure of autonomy on the model of Canada or Australia, uh, but not more than that. Um, however, uh, after 1945, the British Empire was exhausted. And um, with Subhash Chandra Bose, Indians had shown that they were willing to go farther than Mahatma Gandhi's uh, non-violent uh, demonstrations. And so the British were afraid of that because they thought if, if our troops are turning against us, there's little we can do. You see, England is, is now too weak to actually fight for India and to, to, to keep India. So they, were, they, were, they had to think more and more of some kind of transfer of power. And in, indeed, it must be said that they're good at this. If you compare with the decolonization of the French colonies, the French have fought in Vietnam, have fought in Algeria and so on. The British were more clever. And so they managed to create a peaceful transfer of power, like even in Kenya, where they had to defeat the armed uh, Mau Mau movement. But then after defeating them militarily, they nevertheless gave in to them uh, at the negotiation table and made Kenya independent anyway. But so they made sure that their interests were best preserved. But that's after all why they had gone to India in the first place, to make money. So they, they started to work on, you see, preserving their industries, their trade relations and so on. But yes, you see, more and more they were thinking of the possibility of independence. Now, what was then their view about partition? Well, they were obviously against it. 
you see, in their view, which is historically incorrect, but nevertheless, it's one that they all held, uh, they have created India. India had been some, um, some very chaotic landscape of all kinds of Maharajas and Nawabs and, you know, divisions. And so they had united India. And, you know, there was the, the railway system to, to illustrate how they had united India. There were all kinds of industries that, that formed logical uh, holes, um, like, like, you know, famously the jute industry had its, uh, its primary uh, production in East Bengal and then its industrial um, making finished products. In, in Calcutta, and so, you know, they didn't think of, of, uh, of dividing this all up. This was a very logical uh, empire, and it should remain in one place, even if independent. So Lord Linlithgow, the, the third last viceroy, told Jinnah to his face that they would never countenance partition. And same thing with the last but one, Lord Wavell, Though, you see, he started seeing the realistic possibility. So he used to taunt Congress leaders. Oh, yeah, you, you claim to be representatives of the Indian people. Well, what about the Muslim League? You know, they represent a quarter of the population and they are against you and they want partition, which you don't want. So you see that this was part of his worldview. He knew that this partition was on the cards, only, you see, he thought that they could still prevent it. Then in mid-1946, part, the partition movement started becoming violent. You see, until then, its support base among Muslims was divided. You see, among Muslims, many were just, you know, like most people were conservative. They were living in some particular part of India, having their life there, their jobs, you know, their children going to school there, whatever. They had all kinds of local links. They didn't think of moving to Pakistan. And um, so many people were not so interested. Some were also actively against it. You see, this is the, 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 the circle around Maulana Azad. You see, he was a Congress leader and because he opposed the idea of partition, just like Nehru and Gandhi and so on did, people think he was a nationalist, you know. Uh, and that, that's how <laughs> nowadays still describe him as a nationalist Muslim, that is to say an anti-partition Muslim. <laughs> they well, haven't read his books, that's why. Yeah, well, it's not, really, it's not really nationalism. You see, he had a pan-Islamist vision. And so... Exactly. So, you know, I mean, he had already been in the pan-Islamist Khilafat movement in 1920. And so now, you see, he was still animated by that vision that, well, the Muslims should rule India, not a part of it, but all of it. And yeah, they were only a quarter of the population. But look at the Middle Ages, when they were like 5% of the population, and they still ruled India, or a large part of it. So, you see, their idea was, well, we can still rule India. They weren't impressed with these modern notions of democracy that made numbers important. And anyway, 
you see, the numbers problem could be solved because once Muslims were in power, they would create a power equation where very many ordinary people would feel pressure to become Muslim. And then there's also the differential in birth rates with Muslims having larger families. So in, in, in a few generations, this numerical problem would be solved. Muslims would be the majority in India. And so he opted for the whole cake, not a piece of the cake. By contrast, uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was a lawyer who wore Western suits, who drank wine and so on, was a very Westernized Muslim. He knew about these modern values, modern institutions like democracy. And so he thought in these circumstances, it is better to first go for a part of India where we have the majority and then the rest will take care of itself. You know, uh, initially he was even willing to accept Dr. Ambedkar's proposal of a full exchange of population so that in the non-Pakistani part of India, there would be no Muslims left. So then it would be, uh, it would be a very long-term project to Islamize that part. It would be a great setback. But he was even willing to make that compromise if only he could get that part of India that would become fully Islamic. So those were the two tendencies, the two main tendencies in the Muslim camp. Um, once the league started turning violent with the direct action day in Calcutta in 1946, um, everybody, Congress and also the British, started seeing that it would become very difficult to stop partition. Um, at that time, the British had already accepted that independence would come. You know, this was mainly due to the, uh, the naval mutiny in 1946. So uh, Lord Wavell, the Viceroy, already accepted that independence had become inevitable. Uh, but he did not think of partition yet. And so once this violence happened, suddenly it dawned on everybody that, you know, unless there is a really tremendous show of will on the Hindu side and on the British side against partition, then partition would be inevitable. And so we see how among the Congress leadership, one after another leader starts crossing over to the side of partition like Rajaji, like Morarji Desai, and so on. Um, and ultimately, in June 1947, even Mahatma Gandhi, even though he had assured the Hindus in Lahore, in Multan, in Karachi, and so on, that no, 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 don't fear. Partition will only happen over my dead body. Right? So that's what he said, but he was not true to his word. In June, 47, he accepted partition. So everybody crossed over to partition. And the same thing happened with the British. So when Lord Mountbatten arrived in March 47, he had already in his mind that, you know, we're going to give independence to India and we're going to partition India. But so this was not at all a British initiative. This is something that had been forced on the British by violent means, by the Muslim League. And so that's that's the main point where a falsification of history has taken place. It's mostly by Congress 
So they tried to keep the fiction of Hindu-Muslim unity intact. So they denied that over partition, there was a complete opposition between Hindus and Muslims. And at the same time, they grabbed the honor for having uh, driven the British out of India. So it was convenient for them to, uh, to strengthen the anti-colonial narrative by blaming the British for everything under the sun, including partition. So they said, you know, it's the British who uh, had imposed partition, who had given, you know, partition as a as a parting gift, so to speak, to India. So at the time, this was clearly a Congress narrative, um, not supported by the then quite powerful Hindu Mahasabha, for instance. Today, unfortunately, this is also very much an RSS myth, and so in. In the organizer of Panchajanya, you regularly find this phrase that the British partitioned India. Now, um, in in Sechadri's narrative, that's not. Uh, um, I mean, you would have to stretch it a bit in order to read that into it. And at any rate, Goel clearly, unequivocally denies it. No, you see, uh, stop this blaming the British. Here, you see, put the guilt where it belongs which is with the Muslim League. Quite right. Uh, in chapter 5, we actually talk about uh, the frustration of Islam in India. And uh, then he goes to chapter 6, and where he squarely blames the uh, Islamic forces. That says, Islamic atavism renamed Muslim revivalism. And then he juxtaposes it with the national resurgence reviled as Hindu revivalism. So on the one hand, Hindu revivalism was reviled. The national resurgence was reviled as Hindu revivalism. And the Islamic atavism was actually glorified as Muslim revivalism. And all our great big wigs of the Congress party not only accepted it, but ultimately chose to shake hands with it. And it's a moot uh, point whether if Gandhiji had given a call to resist partition, what would possibly have happened? I think we know the Hindu mind. It uh, gets energized very fast, especially if a call comes from a tall leader. And it has no bones about fighting it out. They have resisted Islam for the longest time in the world. Big difference with today, of course. Uh, today there is a, well, I don't know. Looking from outside, I have the impression of a very much weakened will among Hindus to defend themselves. Nowadays, you have Bollywood propaganda reaching the farthest village through television, through the internet. And so now, um, Every girl growing up in some distant village dreams of becoming a Bollywood actress and, and, and takes over the values that are being spread, uh, that are being spoon-fed to them by the Hollywood uh, or the Bollywood story propaganda industry. And so, you see, the fervor for Hinduism, I, I have the impression that it's declining. Like 30 years ago, you had the movement for uh, Ayodhya, for the temple. 
I am not sure that this could be reproduced today. Back then you had the Bajrang Dal in full strength. What happened to the Bajrang Dal today? You know, it has been uh, diminished, it has been downsized by the BJP itself. So, but anyway, in, in 1947, very certainly, you see Hindus were very strong. Um, when you think of weak Hindus, of Gandhian type Hindus, you know, you have these urban westernized, anglicized people like the British barrister Mahatma Gandhi. But, you know, in rural India or in the popular neighborhoods in the cities, you still have a very combatant, combative and, and self-reliant Hinduism. And so at that time, very certainly, like if you see how Hindus defended themselves against all odds in Punjab when they were driven out there during partition, you know, if, if that same fervor could be worked up in areas where the Hindus were stronger and the Muslim side was weaker, then obviously, obviously they would have given Islam a terrible fight and they might well have won. Um, so, but that didn't happen anyway. And so... Yes, I think Congress was... Uh, yeah. Congress was too willing to compromise. Mm -hmm. Yes, and also another factor that we don't know is what it would have happened if the British had used their still present military power and on what side? Like we know, some, some British army commanders uh, who had many Muslims among their troops openly supported the Muslim side. Like in, uh, in, in Kashmir, um, they uh, effectively supported the uh, accession to Pakistan. And with effectively, I don't mean by statements, but by actually um, using their armed force. Yeah, that happened in Delhi, Pakistan. Right. General, uh, that, uh, what is called Major William Brown. I have written a whole chapter on it in my book. Well, you see, that um, didn't happen on an India-wide scale. On the contrary, the British thought, well, you know, we wash our hands of it. It's no longer our problem. We are leaving. So it's a pity if some of our soldiers have to die, you know, at this festive occasion. Um, so, you know, let's not get involved. And so they didn't use their, their, their power uh, to, to lessen the drama that was unfolding in India. You know, they, they could have provided protection. I mean, they could have accepted, for example, that there would be an effective chasing of the Hindus out of West Punjab. True, but at least they could have made sure that this would happen in an orderly manner without bloodshed. And so they refused to do that. You know, I mean, uh, I understand that uh, Indians and, and other people from the ex-colonized countries um, are angry with the European countries for colonization. But when I look at the history of colonization, the, the, the worst, you know, the most ignominious part of it, the most shameful part of it is decolonization. You see the way that the British, for instance, left all this mess in Palestine, Israel, you know, where they could have also lessened the problem 
you know, kept it under control and so on by using that little military force that they still had. I mean, they had a lot of prestige. They had a lot of know-how, which, you know, the natives didn't have. So they could have made a lot of difference and they didn't. When you look, I mean, when you look at what the Belgians did in the Congo, you know, how the French messed up Indochina, Algeria and so on. The, the, the history of decolonization is really nothing to be proud of. And so the way the British left India, even after having put a fairly good show, put up a fairly good show in their last two years, you see the way they went about it, a peaceful transfer, transfer of power and so on, that, that was commendable. But then they messed it up terribly by not getting involved with the way partition was unfolded. So, yeah, I mean, anyway, that's, that's history. That's, that's certainly something you can blame the British for. But the fact of partition itself is not a British doing. That's entirely the Muslim League's doing. Quite right. And that's something that's been assimilated by the RSS so hook, line, and sinker, isn't it? The, yeah. the, the, the blaming the British. Yeah, that, that should stop. <laughs> In fact, I keep uh, telling the uh, RSS people, I heard this recently, an interaction with the Muslim Rashtriya Manch. And then I asked them point blank, I asked them that, okay, the Sarsanga Chalak says that everybody born in the Indian territory is a Hindu. So how come you have a Muslim Rashtriya Manch? Shouldn't you be joining the Vishwa Hindu Parishad instead? Well, they simply evaded the question. So I think uh, there are a lot of these ideological infirmities and uh, ideological fogs that I think the RSS still suffers from. But we need to keep interacting with them and hopefully try and clear the fog. So uh, that's something that is important, I think. You're muted. Please unmute. Yes. Yeah, okay, so we, we certainly have to keep interacting with them. And we can do that by <laughs> allowing them to join the cabinet, for example, to join the RSS activities and so on. But they shouldn't have a special status. On the contrary, the, 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 whole, the whole idea is to integrate India, you see, to, to, to make a common cause between all Indians. And so to create a separate organization for them is, is neither here nor there. Um, you can see in the government, for example, you have this, uh, this minister Nakvi, who was always the, 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 the Muslim showboy of the BJP, showing, oh yeah, we have Muslims too, we are not Hindu communalists. Well, you see, the main thing he has done in, in, in the government is to continue the appeasement policies of Congress and to, 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 to privilege the Muslim community. So exactly what we don't need, we, we have to drop this idea of separate identities. And then what they believe, you know, going to the mosque and so on, well, we'll see what happens. At any rate, we don't want to give people trouble on account of the way they worship. If it's only the way they worship, we don't care. Hinduism has always been tolerant, has never asked, for example, when the Mopla Muslims settled on the Kerala coast. Nobody asked them, what is it exactly that you do in these mosques? When the Syrian Christians arrived and settled there, 
Nobody asked them, what is it that you do in those churches? You see, different forms of worship were simply allowed. No questions asked. So, you see, if, if Muslims want to do that, whatever else I may think about Islam, but you see, if Muslims want to do that, I don't think the government, at any rate, the political dimension of the Hindu movement has nothing to do with that. You see, that, that can continue, that, that's fine. You see, what is wrong is to accept that they are separate, that they have separate interests, that they have a, a separate identity. That, that, that really can't go. I mean, at least if you care about national unity, national integrity, then you see it's exactly the opposite you should do. You should <laughs> encourage Muslims to disidentify with Islam and to more and more merge in the national mainstream. Uh, okay, I mean, <coughs> the interesting part of that conversation was that uh, a gentleman who was a national convener of the Muslim Rashtriya Manch, he actually said something like that the Muslim Rashtriya Manch is of the Muslims, for the Muslims, and by the Muslims. And Muslim League used to say exactly that. Yeah, well, um, I guess my point is clear here. And I mean, it's very simple also. There's not much to be said about it. You see, if you want to break down the walls between these different communities, well, then start to treat them as part of the national mainstream. And so all these exceptional privileges are totally out of place. You know, to say, oh, yeah, Muslims have the, the first right to our national resources, as Manmohan Singh said, uh, you know, that's totally, that's anti-national. I mean, in a literal sense, you see, that's making divisions within the population, you know, pitting one group as privileged against the others as not privileged. So, that's, I mean, that's just the opposite of what we should do. We should simply drop the notion of minority. There should be no minorities commission the word minority should not appear in the constitution or in any policy document. The statisticians may calculate how many Muslims and how many Christians and so on. And then, you know, it will turn out mathematically that those who aren't 50%, well, they are minorities. You know, that's a purely descriptive term. But in legal matters, it shouldn't count at all. There's no such thing as a minority. In a secular state, there are only citizens. And all citizens are equal before the law. And so they should not uh, be treated differently on account of their religion or their caste or whatever. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess that's clear and that's that's a very simple, yes. straightforward uh, position. Um, what I will try, I'll try and send you the link. Of course, the entire conversation is in Hindi. and. Uh, there are two panelists. The other panelist is uh, from uh, what is called Pasmanda or the backward Muslims. And the gentleman from the backward Muslims is vehement on stating that there should not be any specialist Muslim organization. He says that uh, the entire narrative has been captured by the upper class Muslim, what they call Ashraf. And that has been the case ever since the time of uh, the Mughals, 
the partition was the partition narrative was run by these uh, upper class elite muslims after the partition the entire narrative of the muslims the separate muslim uh, the muslim separatism has been captured by these upper class muslims and he was emphatic that they wanted the backward muslims who constitute 90% they wanted no part of this and they wanted to be called indians and not muslims don't you find this interesting i'll send you the link if you can you i think you can understand hindi though you may not be able to speak it no no that's very welcome um in terms of the territorial narrative there's uh, another angle here the um ashraf muslims are mostly um the ones who actually descend from foreigners from invaders and they pride themselves on that you see they they have genealogies real or fake uh you know making them descend either from the prophet himself or from some famous arab or turkish invaders um now in reality that doesn't mean they're not indian i mean even biologically because when muslim armies invaded they consisted of men it was only only some very very high placed people who could afford to bring over their harems from damascus from baghdad all the way to india mostly i mean 99.99% were single men and so if they procreated it was with indian women either by rape or abduction or by real marriage or by buying them uh, but anyway you see the biological effect was that the second generation was already 50% indian and the third generation was you know 70% or so indian and and so on so for all practical purposes biologically speaking the entire muslim community in india is indian but nevertheless uh, it is only the lower class muslims who accept that they're indian you see among upper class muslims you still have this self identification as foreign as basically arabic basically turkish you know like like for instance uh many muslims are called khan which is a turkish title or they are mongol title quraishi or um sharif or so those are arabic titles and so strictly speaking that means you know sharif i'm a descendant of the prophet now that doesn't count for that many people and so there has of course been a history uh, among indian muslims over the centuries of people who made it you know who who made themselves uh, a convenient genealogy making them descendants of the prophet or making them descendants of baba or genghis khan and so on um so that has also been there you know that that culture of trying not to be indian but that's long ago you see they still carry those family names but that culture of trying to be non indian that's much less today and um so you know for all practical purposes let's just treat muslims as part of the indian nation and so give them the same laws the same treatment as hindus as everyone else and that will take away a lot of the uh, animosity between muslims and the rest 
okay uh, that's quite right so uh, i think uh, on that note we could uh, move to the question and answer session and before that i have to request all my viewers to first subscribe the channel all those who are watching please do subscribe the channel and uh, please share the video like it also press the bell icon so that you could get the notifications and yes we do solicit your contributions let's go to the questions press the bell icon on youtube and don't miss another update Uh, Abhishek Anand, any comment on those Hindus who put their regional identity above their Hindu identity and include local Muslims or Black Islam in that regional identity? Yeah, regional identities are, of course, real. Like in the Vedic age, for example, the Vedic culture did not yet affect all of India. You know, you had greater Magadha, the area where later on the Buddha and Mahavira Jina were born, uh, which had a different emphasis. You know, part of what is now pan-Indian, pan-Hindu culture can be traced to that area. The, the whole culture of uh, the reincarnation belief, the meditation practice largely stems from there, not from the Vedic area. By contrast, the chanting of the mantras, the fire sacrifices, so that comes from the Vedic area. More from the south comes the worship of statues, of murtis, living in temples, which did not exist in, in the Vedic culture, and so on. The, the mother goddesses, they exist in every village, of course, but they're mainly identified with Bengal, Assam, with the northeast. And, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, there are different emphases within India. It's a very large territory. Today, you can take the plane from Chennai to Delhi uh, and be there in a few hours. Back then, it was an enormous journey. And so many people living in Tamil Nadu never left Tamil Nadu. Uh, so, so long ago, you see, these local cultures were pretty different. They gradually got integrated. And so one very important aspect is that they got Brahminized. You know, if I may turn Sanskritized. And already very long, like, for instance, in the case of uh, Dravidian separatism. I mean, Dravidian separatism was always a non-starter. And so the... The Dravid Akashagam started it in, in, after independence. But then when the Chinese invasion came, it turned out that everybody in Tamil Nadu supported India against, against its enemies. So that was given up, that political separatism, but there's still a cultural separatism. Now, those cultural separatists, you know, try to um, push the idea of a separate Tamil culture different from Indian culture. But no matter how far back you go in the past to check this Tamil culture, you see Brahminical culture all over. You see the Tokapiam grammar of Tamil is already a calc on Sanskrit grammar. The um, Tirukural, um, the, the oldest uh, poetic work about how to live is already very close to the Shastras. 
very much the same ideas. So there is no such thing as pure Tamil culture. It was always already to some extent uh, Sanskritized. Uh, of course, you have like more outlying areas, not by being more distant in kilometers, but just by being less hospitable, especially in the mountains, where you do have tribes that are pretty far from the mainstream. Now, again, you see this is a historical uh, thing to know. It's not really there anymore. I mean, since at least the 20th century that, you know, India has established its presence in the farthest corner of the Northeast, of the New Giri Mountains and so on. Um, but so, yes, you see, there you could have a certain regionalism. In fact, I will even defend uh, or, or defend for the moment a position that uh, among Hindu, Hindu nationalists will be problematic. Namely, the, um, the Aryan invasion believers, they say that the tribals are Adivasis. Now, Adivasi, mind you, is not some ancient Sanskrit term attesting to the fact that the ancient, you know, Sanskrit invaders were very conscious that they were not Adivasis and that these tribals were the, the real aboriginals. No, 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 no. That term is from the 1920s. That was invented by the missionaries who are nothing if not clever. And so that is, a, is the single uh, brightest and shortest uh, propaganda. Um, it, confer, it, it, it conveys the idea that tribals are native to India and non-tribals are not. So <laughs> that is nonsense. You see, most Indians are quite indigenous, even if they are not. They are established in India for far longer than most Americans are in America. Um, but so anyway, that's a, that's a completely false distinction. However, however, what you could say is that a number of the tribals, not all of them, like the Nagas in Nagalim, for example, are immigrants from Southeast Asia in about the year 1000, which by Indian standards is quite recent. Um, but most tribals are native to their particular area. And so they are not more native to India than their Sanskritic neighbors. But nevertheless, they are more indigenous to, for example, the Santals are more indigenous to Chotanagpur. That you could say. And um, so you could say, well, the term Adivasi has a certain truth to it, namely that those people in terms of local culture, not pan-Indian, but just local, are more entitled to being called local than those people who have moved away from, let's say, from Bihar all the way upland to Chotanagpur. Um, that you could perhaps say, and you see, there's no problem in recognizing this. You know, I mean, in every country, you have regions that are somewhat different, you know, and that that difference had best been acknowledged in India. And indeed, to a large extent, that is being acknowledged. Like, for instance, you have linguistic states. 
you have a recognition of tribal languages. Like, uh, I think, in under the Vajpayee government, the Santali language was recognized as an official language. Now, this doesn't count for all of them, but at least already more than 20 languages have been recognized. There is a recognition of local culture. And they are given separate schools in Canada, in Telugu, and so on. Um, mostly linguistic states, not, not always everywhere. Sometimes it's just a local district or so that is given to one language. But nevertheless, you see, to the extent possible, India is doing a lot to recognize these local differences. So there is nothing wrong in saying, oh, I am a Tamil. Okay, but you're also an Indian. And indeed, a Tamil is an Indian. So, I mean, I have no problem with this. Let's okay. say it like Let's go to the next one. Uh, Siddhartha Elstji, you are, are you optimistic about the Hindu youth today? Comparing today's youth with the 70s, uh, 80s, aren't we more pro-Hindutva? Yeah. Well, well, if you're more pro-Hindutva, then I wouldn't count that as a plus. I don't like the word Hindutva. Um, it's a very artificial word, combining a Persian root Hindu with a Sanskrit suffix Twa. And um, it's now used as a term for Hindu nationalism, which again, you see, I have my criticisms of detail of um, the identification with of Hinduism with India is something which I have already explained, you see, I, I find meaningful, it makes sense, but nevertheless, not everything should be reduced to it. And so in some cases, identifying Hinduism with India leads to wrong understanding. I mean, if I may quote myself, um, nationalism is a misstatement of Hindu concerns, you know, like to say, the foreign invader Babar destroyed the Rama temple. Okay, to say that, as the RSS has always been doing in the Ayodhya affair, um, mistakenly suggests that the problem with Babar is that he was foreign. That's not true. <laughs> That's you see, not the true. British conquered India and they did not destroy temples. Mm -hmm. And in the past, you see, the Scythians and the Kushanas and so on, they conquered parts of India. They did not destroy temples. It's not because he was a foreigner that Babar did it, but because he was a Muslim, right? So to, to, to reduce everything to this territorial national factor leads to mistakes. So I'm not in favor of it. But nevertheless, you see, that's, that's nitpicking. I, I see your point. You see, is the youth more enthusiastic for, for the Hindu cause? I'm not sure of that. And so here I have to admit, as a foreigner, certainly at the moment of having been away from India for a long time because of this corona, but even when in India, I do not have my uh, finger on the pulse of public opinion. I mean, I get some impression and so the people I visit, you see, the, in, in families, you see, how have the youth evolved compared to the elders? You know, I, I get a glimpse 
once in a while, but I would not uh, take that to be representative. So I, I, I don't have more than an impression. Now, nevertheless, since you ask, what is that impression? Well, Next. I am not so sure that the youth is more motivated by Hindu. I am very charmed by the Hindu commitment that I see on forums like this one or just on Twitter and so on. You find many obnoxious people there, but also many uh, people who have their heart in the right place, who are studying, who are learning. And um, so that is very much there. But I don't know if that represents a growing tendency among the Hindu youth, because what I see at the same time is the the uh, onward march of westernization, of Americanization. Um, like, for instance, one thing I notice is that in many families, uh, in the old days, you used to have, you know, when when I came in as a sort of fairly well-known person or honored by that particular family where I was welcomed, all the kids would come and touch my feet. Now, I, I, that, that is still not strange or so, that's not marginalized. Nevertheless, I see that diminish. And um, you see, when I see the, the decoration in people's houses, you know, I see the gods make way for film stars and so on. And I don't know if that's progress. But again, you see, I don't know to what extent this this is the case, because you see that the families and so on that I frequent are probably not representative for the whole Indian population. But so I'm not sure. You know, when I, I remember the Ayodhya movement and, and the, the, the massive response by Hindu youngsters, and I am not sure that it would even be possible today. But maybe I'm mistaken about that. You see, that's, these are just uh, personal impressions. Uh, I, I'd like to know more about it, uh, as you do, you know, what the mood is among the, the younger generation. Okay, let's go to the next question. Rakesh Ori. I would like to translate Sita Ramji's books to Hindi, starting with Parvarshan Vidya's political parlance. Guidance and advice will be appreciated. Is there a comprehensive list of books already translated? Books have been translated already since the beginning. Uh, both of Ram Swarup and of Sita Ram Goel. Um, so there are Hindi versions in the 90s or so, in a few cases, Bengali. Um, I, don't, I don't know about other languages. Once in a while, there is some, some, some devotee from, I don't know, uh, Andhra or so, who has made a translation in his own language. Uh, about the latter, I, I don't know the details. About Hindi, there are a number. But I'm sure you can find it on the website of Biblia Impex, Biblia Impex or Voice of India. Um, so I think it's uh, simply Biblia Impex in one word dot com. And um, so there you can find it all. Yeah, okay, next. 
Sumit Tiwari in MPPSC preliminary examination answer key. It is said that Thakkar Bapa coined the term Ariwasi. Interesting. I mean, I didn't know the exact name of the person, so that's a helpful information. Uh, what is the abbreviation there in the beginning? I have a hard time seeing it because my screen is very small and my eyes aren't good anymore. It's yeah, yeah, but yeah, there's an abbreviation in the beginning. That's uh, Madhya Pradesh. Yeah. Madhya Pradesh Public Service Commission. That is a competitive examination. Yeah. Okay, that, that's uh, information to work on. So that's Thakur. Thakur, Baba. Not yeah. Thakur, Thakur, Thakur. Thakur. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me note that down. Okay, Thakur. next question. Yeah, that's next totally question. new to me. Next question. Gauri Dani, West Bengal. Kashmir politics is based on Muslim separatism. If one calls it out, they are Islamophobes. If one doesn't, they are held hostage to unreasonable demands. What role can society play to bust this trap? Looks like we need to strategize to tackle this on many fronts. Yeah, well, um, there are different situations that uh, demand different strategies. Uh, in the case of Bengal, for what I hear of all that happened after the elections, I'm not too optimistic and without a centrally driven strategy, it looks like Bengal is sliding further and further and will simply become some kind of a province of Bangladesh. Um, like the latest I hear is that many BJP voters and even BJP activists are going around proclaiming that they are sorry that they voted BJP and that they are going to join hands with uh, Trinamool. Well, I mean, it's 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 bad if it has come to that. You know, after oh, the murder. That, that's also due to the sheer cowardice that BJP has shown. Yeah, but I agree that there are factors that, that could make a difference. And that, um, that uh, I mean, the BJP has played a very negative role in this, but nevertheless, it has done so. And so the reality at the moment is that it doesn't look well for Hindus in Bengal. You know, you, yeah. last years ago, you had Tapan Ghosh with his uh, Hindu Samhati. And uh, I've, I've interviewed him twice, I believe, uh, over there. And I was quite impressed with the courage and what he met, what he achieved. Like, um, I've been introduced to a number of girls who were staying at his place who had escaped Islamic arranged weddings or, um, uh, or in mixed marriages where they were going to be forced to become Muslims, where they managed to escape or even where they managed to escape with their husbands who converted to Hinduism. And so, I mean, that is that is the most important front, in my opinion, is Gharwapasi, is, uh, you know, bring Muslims back to their, to their mother culture. And at the very least, 
you see, uh, help Hindus when they are finding themselves forced to convert to Islam. So that, I mean, you know, when I saw what was possible, if, if you know, even on the strength of one man's conviction, and then using his strategy, his know-how, you know, his knowledge of the local situation, um, what he managed to achieve, you know, if if the BJP would work along those lines, what is still possible, you know, in <laughs> in spite of the, you know, tremendous anti-Hindu force that has come up in Bengal, that is still possible if the will is there. And that is now the big problem with the BJP. The will to defend Hindu interests is not there. Yes, you're right. I agree with you on that. And also, they, there is a big, huge, big ideological fog, as you can see. It's there in the RSS, so it is there in the BJP as well. Anyway, I think that's the last question. Uh, we can... Okay, there's one more. Why haven't the language or the languages of Rajasthan still not gotten the recognition and are still being called a dialect of Hindi when it's proven that it's false? Well, that's because they can't settle the differences within themselves because uh, well, there, is, yeah. there is not one language in Rajasthan, but there are several. And each of them claim to represent what is called Rajasthani. That's not the case because Bikaner, Marwar, Mewar, Kota, Bharatpur, of course, is completely different. It is Bridge Bhasha. So there are seven divisions, and all seven of them have a different dialect. So where do you go? As a foreigner who has learned Hindi, um, you see, I've only learned school Hindi. And so that's, that's more or less enough to follow the news on Dur Darshan. Already less on the on the on the commercial stations because they make more concessions to, you know, whatever local dialect and so on. Just like the BBC makes concessions to the Australian accent and the Scottish accent and so on. Um, so, but you know, when I hear people talk among each other, you know, very often I, I can't follow because what they really speak is Bhojpuri, is Awadhi, is Magadhi is Marwari and so on. And um, so, you know, you have all these dialects of Hindi. And so this, this school Hindi is a compromise. It's a kind of Esperanto. And um, most modern states have endeavored to create a unitary, a unitary language. Like for instance, the school Chinese, the Chinese that you hear on the TV news, for example, by now, every Chinese can speak that. Maybe he won't do that in his family and a friend circle. But if as a foreigner, you take up your school Chinese and you try that, then they will answer you in school Chinese. Now, and in some countries it hasn't worked so well, like because you don't have one country, like in Arabic, Moroccan Arabic and Saudi Arabic are quite different. Um, but within one country, normally, you see, if in India they had been as uh, stern as the Chinese have been, then Hindi at least would be one language by now. And so that's not the case. And I'm not sure that that should be one language. You see, if you think, oh, but this is our national language, then something is to be said for 
you know, forgetting about the dialects and pushing for this linguistic unity. But I'm not so sure that that's the best choice for, for India. You know, in my country, there's a long linguistic problem. And so when people were still going to church, which is hardly the case anymore now, um, there were protests against um, Eucharists, you know, church mass uh, being conducted in French, at least if it was in the Dutch speaking areas. They thought this was a, an imposition. And so the people who defended French, they said, they taunted, ah, but you're not against the use of Latin in church. No, of course not. People were not against the use of Latin because that's international. That's not because of some linguistic imperialism. And um, so similarly in India, and here the, 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 the comparison is quite precise, to, to uh, be a Tamil and have Hindi imposed on you, that creates resentment. To have Sanskrit imposed on all Indians as a common language, as a link language, not replacing the native languages, but at least as a link language, which is used in education and in administration, that could be feasible. So for that reason, you see, it was an enormous mistake of uh, Rajendra Prasad to cast the deciding vote in the language commission of the Constituent Assembly in favor of Hindi and against Sanskrit. If he had voted for Sanskrit, then by 1950, Sanskrit would have been the official language. By 1965, it would have phased out English completely. By that time, everybody in India would have endeavored to learn Sanskrit, uh, at least to his own ability. And the next generation would be familiar with Sanskrit. It would not be a foreign language. They would not have to specially study it. You know, they would use it. It would be normal yes. for them. And everybody yeah. in the whole world would have applauded. You see, the, 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 the East Asians, because of the Buddhist reason, Europeans, because of the Indo-European reason um, in Africa and so on, they would have applauded simply the fact that a native language, you know, a, a medium of national pride replaces the colonial language. So it was 100% in favor. By contrast, to try to impose Hindi, which is just one of the languages, on all those Bengali speakers and Marathi speakers and so on, that's you know, that, that's asking for problems. Yes, yes, so, yes absolutely. Even Dr. Ambedkar so, favored Sanskrit. Right. So it is very difficult now. In 1948, it was quite feasible. It is very difficult now. Nevertheless, I think even now, the choice for Sanskrit would be better than the uh, present-day choice for Hindi. Right, right. And also, just to underwrite that, uh, you said, Hindi, incidentally, is the youngest Indian language. It's less than 200 years old in its modern form. Yeah. Gauri Dani, why Islamic nations are not united as one as the united and not non-Islamic countries should take them over, uh, but are able to hold one big nation combining all Islamic states. Uh, anyway, I think uh, that's not really relevant to our discussion today because it is in the Indian context. And also, we are not short of time, so we'll move over to the next question, Gauri. 
the devil, the same people forces who are against CAA bill want Rohingya Muslims in India. Next level hypocrisy, indeed it is. And we explained that right at the beginning. Um, well, I have a di difficulty uh, seeing it, but um, it's about the Rohingyas, I understand. Oh, uh, I'll say okay. that the same people who are opposing the CAA yeah. are welcoming Rohingyas. They make a problem of welcoming the, uh, the Sikhs from Afghanistan, and at the same time, they want to welcome the Rohingyas from Myanmar. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Akhan Bharat, you see the day that Bangladesh is again a part of India, then I would have nothing against uh, Rohingyas resettling in their country of origin, which is East Bengal. And so, I mean, you can see when they arrive in East Bengal, they're welcomed. They've also tried to go to Saudi Arabia or to Malaysia, and they were chased out. And, and everybody was making trouble about them. And so in East Bengal, the most overpopulated country in the world, nevertheless, all these extra mouths to feed were welcomed. Why? Because they were one of them. The Rohingyas are, of course, East Bengalis. So, um, so that they find another place outside of Myanmar, I don't mind. Uh, but you see, in India, if there had been a... Um, exchange of population in 1947, as proposed by Dr. Ambedkar, then every Muslim crossing the Indian border would understand, okay, here I am leaving Islamic territory. Here, this is not the place for Muslims. So either I try to make a living in Bangladesh or I drop Islam. And so that, that, that would have been a good thing. And in fact, to return to our topic of partition. Um, yeah, yeah uh, because, yeah, it's only now I think of it. But you see, many people in India say that partition, after all, you see, was painful and so on. But nevertheless, it was the best thing for Hindus. Because after all, 25% um, of Muslims by now 33% of or so, um, is more than enough to prevent Hindus from establishing Hindu life. They would sabotage you no end. But I'm not so sure of that. You see, they didn't manage to sabotage you when the British were in power. And so the British had a strict policy of, you know, keeping these communal disturbances and so on in low key because they wanted to make money. So they wanted it all to be orderly. Um, and so it proves that this is possible. So an Indian government can also do it. And so, you know, you, you know, even though you have 25% Muslims, still you can go without riots if you really set your mind to it. You know, if, if you do like... Uh, What's his name? Um, uh, KPS Jill in Punjab, you know, against all odds of Khalistani terrorism, he managed to win and bring peace back. So, you know, it's not entirely impossible if you really set your mind. Anyway, anyway. You, have the, you have the example of present-day Uttar Pradesh. 
you know, more fundamentally, um, if uh, partition had not taken place, you see, you can say, okay, the Hindus got the best part of India because what the Muslims got was leftovers. You know, they got one city, Lahore, and then Karachi, but otherwise all the prized, you know, parts of India are within the Indian Republic. Like Calcutta is within India, not within Bangladesh. And so, so some people are saying, well, you see, this gave Hindus a reprieve. This gave them a chance to reestablish themselves, a chance which they didn't take. Nevertheless, you see, it's still possible to take it. Whereas if this were Akhan Bharat, then Muslims would be in power by now. Well, you see, I'm not so sure of that. Okay, because let's go to the next question. Mobilization with most visibly in the RSS, where they don't speak about Hindu anymore, they speak about Indian. They are not, you see, Hindu fanatics or, you know, activists. No, no, they're nationalists. Okay, and they try to <laughs> everything in terms of nation rather than of Hindu community. Mm -hmm. And so, if partition hadn't happened, then that change of terminology would also not have happened. The Hindus would not have organized as Indians because the Muslims with their 25, 30, 35% would also be Indians. No, they would have organized as Hindus and there would not have been this confusion between religious and ter territorial. And so you see, I mean, there is a lot of self, uh, self derogatory talk about Hindus, you know, oh yeah, we Hindus are not organized. Yeah, you know, we quarrel all the time and you know, we are so pleasure seeking and you know, but that's not true, you see. Hindus have done very well whenever put on the test. Like you see in the Indo-Pak wars, you know, India has won them all and the Indian army is mostly Hindu. You know, thanks to Sardar Patel who kept the Muslims out and thanks to the British who divided the army, sending as much as possible the Muslim sections of the army to Pakistan. Um, so, so in spite of efforts to the contrary by the Manmohan Singh government, the Indian army is mostly Hindu, Hindu including Sikh. Um, and so they won all the wars. You know, Pakistan, with all its uh, macho bluster, nevertheless, they lost every time, right? So I wouldn't underestimate the Hindus. So if Hindus had organized as Hindus in this uh, united India, uh, and, you know, which would have received a political expression very soon, the Hindu Mahasabha would have grown enormously. You see, just before the murder of Gandhi, which completely made the Hindu Mahasabha impossible. Uh, but until then, they, they had the wind in the sails. They were growing and they would have eclipsed Congress. And so, uh, of course, it would be a challenge to manage the, the possibility of civil war with the Muslim community. You know, it would not be an easy life. But nevertheless, you would be far better organized in that situation than you have in the present situation. You know, Hindus would have organized as Hindus. Can, can we go to the next question? Can we go to the next yeah. question? 
Yeah, so this is the last question that we are taking. Garidani, Sita Ram Goelji's book should be converted into course format. Your thoughts, please. I take notes from his work and think they are worthy of turning into course work. Well, yes, but, you know, I mean, it, it all depends on, you know, what the intention is of the professor with the course and so on. That, that whole book can be studied as such or a course on a related topic can be written using a lot of the information in Sitarangoel's book. Uh, now, in the days of the Internet, you know, this book can be put in, in any format, you know, can be made available. So, I mean, I don't think it, the question refers to any real life problem. You know, you, you can take these ideas and they can take different shapes. But of course, these ideas should be popularized and, and, and should be it should be, you know, obligatory coursework for, for students. OK, right. So uh, that brings us to the end of this uh, episode. And uh, uh, with Conrad's uh, approval, the next that I want to take Sita Ram Goel's work, and that is called The Heroic Hindu Resistance to Muslim Invasion. That's a very important piece of history of about 500 years before the Sultanate uh, uh, time. Uh, okay, the Sumitwari says that Thakkar Bapa was not asked in examination, but is taught in coaching for MCDs. Well, that has no credibility, what the coaching people tell. Because coaching people may not be right most of the time. Uh, so, with that, uh, we bring the curtains to this show. Thank you very much, Conrad, and thank you very much, viewers, and uh, Jai Hind, Pandey Matram.